Good morning. My name is Kathy Gurley, child of the Most High God. Today's lesson is on partiality, favoritism, prejudice, bias. I'm going to read most of our prayer for today from a devotional book, so please pray with me for God's blessing on our time this morning. Dear Lord, how thankful I am for your view of human status and abilities, failures and weaknesses. I am so glad that you, the high and exalted one, are not impressed with the positions people hold, that you are not in the least partial or prejudiced, that you show no personal favoritism. Thank you that you have no regard for any external distinctions, rich or poor, famous or unknown, high rank or low, handsome or homely, for any race or culture above any other, but that you do have regard for all who are humble in heart. You use people whom the world calls foolish and weak, poor and insignificant. You oppose those who exalt themselves, and you exalt those who humble themselves, giving them your grace. Thank you that I, a common earthenware jug, contain the priceless treasure of your life and glory, and so my every victory and accomplishment obviously comes from your all-prevailing power and not from me. May your spirit speak now through this vessel to expound your word to us that you may be exalted as the Lord of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, we have an outline for today that shows where we're headed today. This outline matches each of the titles, the sections that are on your handout. And also, in each section on the handout, I put the scriptures and other references so that you would have those. At the very bottom, we see the last section called, How Would You Like to Be Judged? This will be the choice before each one of us today. We would all like to be judged with mercy and compassion and grace. However, James shows us all that we fail repeatedly. And in the section from James 2, 9 through 11, we are all shown by the law to be transgressors of the law. That will be one way we may choose to be judged, working our way to God, trying to win his approval by our good deeds, and hopefully balancing out our bad deeds. But there is another way. We will see how the way of Jesus, the royal law, the law of liberty, Jesus' perfect law of love, gives us true freedom and trumps every attempt we make to keep the law perfectly. The answer is not us, it's Jesus. Everything else we discuss today, partiality, the rich and the poor, and so on, is merely a prelude to the real thing, or rather, the real person, Jesus, and his perfect keeping of the law for us so that we can live our lives here on earth in freedom, in love, and compassion toward all people, rich or poor, and then with him in eternity. Later, I will, is, it, uh, is it okay now? Okay. Later, I will tell you a story of my own inexcusable partiality. 
But first, I want to read just a few verses from James from our lesson today from the message, which is a paraphrase, because it fits in well with another story that, of partiality that I want to tell you. My dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-originated faith. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him, and you say to the man in the suit, sit here, sir, this is the best seat in the house, and you either ignore the street person or you say, better sit here in the back row, haven't you segregated God's children and proven that you are judges who cannot be trusted? Years ago, before I was a child of the Most High God, we were the recipients of partiality in a negative way. God was drawing us to himself, but we weren't quite there yet. So we were visiting several different types of churches, and this one particular Sunday in the summer, we chose a large church in the city of Indianapolis. Then, before internet or cell phones, we used the yellow pages to get information. So. I found the ad, it showed a map, how to find the church, had a listing of the service times, and even stated that they had a nursery. Now, our, two, our little ones were five, two, and an infant. We were poor by Zinesville standards. We owned just one car, didn't have much extra money, but in preparation for kindergarten carpools for that fall, my husband bought a second vehicle, a used station wagon at Rex Incorporated. Subtitle, we meet by accident, a junkyard. It ran well, but there was a bright blue fender on one side of this burgundy car with large number 923 painted in white. We weren't in a financial position immediately to get it painted, but this became our family car. Thus, we drove into the parking lot of this church on this warm sun summer morning. Our young children were up early, so we chose the earliest morning service. The ushers were standing outside the door, and they saw us coming. Now, it was back in the day when men wore suits to church and women dressed up, so I know we were properly attired. I'm not sure if it was the car or the three little children or both but we were escorted to seats in the very back row against the hard stone wall of this extremely large edifice. And there were about maybe two dozen elderly people way up in the front with what seemed like hundreds of empty pews between us and them. Oh yes, and we were told, no, there's no nursery at this service, only at the family service, which apparently we didn't choose. So thus was our experience of partiality in the family of God. On the positive side of that story, we had a small church. We, we had a small church here in the village where we were taught and nurtured and loved as we walked through the process of becoming Christians. One friend was not able to be here today, but there are several others who are here from that body. Love you all. Um, let me read now our passage from James, from the ESV, which is a real translation. <laughs> My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court and blaspheme the name, the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, reflecting the Lord of glory. James uses the second and only other instance of the name of Jesus in his letter here, calling him our Lord Jesus Christ, but then he calls him the Lord of glory. And so we have Cinda's beautiful depiction here of that. This is on the last page of every one of our lessons. With the light streaming from the top of the lighthouse. If you studied the book of Hebrews with us, you may remember a verse from the very beginning of Hebrews, and I have to say it in the translation that I first memorized it in. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So this glory that he's talking about was equivalent to the Shekinah glory, the glory that God had above the mercy seat in the, over the Ark of the Covenant, so James here is using the strongest words that he can to describe Jesus as equivalent to this God of glory, to the majesty and presence of God himself, to his divine glory. Since James was one of the first New Testament books written, then this demonstrates that the very earliest Christians believed wholeheartedly that Jesus was truly God himself. John Calvin says, so great is the brightness of Christ that it easily extinguishes all the glories of the world. And Matthew Poole says of Christ, the Lord of glory, if we are related to him by faith, that puts honor on believers, even the poor and despicable, so they must not be condemned. Now, Laura taught us back in lesson three about, that's been a while, hasn't it? About the tests of true religion given to us in James 1. Bridle our tongues, take care of widows and orphans, which basically is the poor and the um, helpless, and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. James takes us right into a real life situation and he describes how some believers, and we know they must have been because he's calling them brothers. Dan Doriani describes the situation this way. 
two men, one poor and one rich, enter a gathering where just one seat remains. If the rich man gets the seat and the poor man gets the floor, that violates pure religion as defined in James 1.27. The world invades the church and the poor who hope that at least the church grants them equality are put down once more. So this scenario, first of all, insults the poor, secondly, allows the world's ways to enter in to disgrace the family of God. That's two strikes out of three in James Marks of genuine religion. And then if the words are spoken disdainfully or condescendingly, then all three of James' tests have been violated. So that you can visualize the um, synagogue, I have a little pointer in here somewhere. And hopefully I won't do what I did one time and have it backwards. Um, <laughs> I was like, why isn't it showing? Um, okay, here we have some pictures of synagogues, early, early synagogues. The top two are first, first century synagogues. This one on the top left is from Migdal, which is an area of Magdala, northwest of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. This is the earliest first century synagogue. Now, if you can see, um, the center is all open. And then see this thing here? That's part of a pillar that has been, um, what, excavated or whatever archaeologists do. And it would have gone all the way up to the top as part of the things that held up the roof. And then around the edges, these are all stone benches where all the people, well, the men, would have sat. This one over here, so you can see the same idea, the benches for people to sit, and then here are the, um, the remains of some of the pillars that would have gone up to the ceiling. And this one on the right is interesting because it actually was taken over by the Jews during the revolt in, 19, in, <laughs> not 19, in 66 AD when they were fighting against Rome. And this was a Herodian um, reception hall. And they took this over and they transformed it into a synagogue. And then, sorry, I couldn't, I didn't know how to Photoshop out my friend, but. And then down here, these, these two on the bottom are the same one. These are from Capernaum, which you've heard that word. That's also um, north of the Sea of Galilee. But these are fourth century, so that's several hundred years later. But um, this was much, much larger of a synagogue. But you can still see the same idea. You see the, where, come on, light. Um, you see the benches around the outside where they would have sat, and then you can see these partial pillars that would have held it all up. So just so that you can kind of get an idea of what it might have been like for them at that time. So if a man wearing a gold ring comes into your assembly, gold rings, often multiple ones, were a sign of wealth or property. In fact, they were such a status symbol, you're going to love this, that several commentators tell of first century ring rental shops so that you could appear to be rich. Um, senators in Rome were distinguished by their gold rings. Only free men could wear them, not slaves or servants. So let's think in the Bible. Think of the prodigal son. When he returns home, he gets a robe and sandals and a gold ring. Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. And when Rebekah is the one, the servant gives her a gold ring. 
in the end of the book of Job, all Job's siblings and friends come to comfort him and give him a gold ring. On the other hand, if you make distinctions among yourselves and show favoritism, that is as bad as Proverbs 11:22. We have a picture here. For those of you who are listening, we have a photo of a pig with a gold ring in its snout. The proverb says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a woman who lacks discretion. So we can have the trappings of wealth and the outward appearance of significance, but if we are not doing it God's way and do not have the inward character to match the outward trappings, it can actually look absurd, just like the pig. This is so convicting to me that I can appear lovely on the outside, but what is going on inside of my heart or what is coming out of my mouth? God does not regard people the way that we see them. We had a verse from 1 Samuel in our lesson today. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So the wealthy man has lovely clothing, shimmering, glistening, silver and gold, beautiful appearance. And we can all understand what it's like to stand next to someone like that when we're in muddy jeans and maybe have been mucking out a horse stall or something. So the poor man in shabby clothing comes in. This Greek word means filthy or foul, so ragged clothing, possibly even smelly. If we pay attention to the well-dressed person and disregard the poor man or treat him with contempt, then we have made distinctions among ourselves. Now certainly, we courteously honor and respect people of rank, special rank in the world. I mean, if the Pope or the president or somebody, the governor, whatever, came in here, that's, we should do that. But the difference here and throughout God's word is not that it's wrong to show deference to people of rank or whatever, but partiality enters when we reproach or demean a, the poor and think about the character of the person. The rich person, I mean, we learn later, some of them were behaving terribly to their brothers. The rich person may not have stellar character. The poor man might. The poor man knows he needs something. He surely doesn't have it all together. And he may be quicker to realize his desperate need of someone to help him. You have a question in your lesson helping us to think about different ways that someone can be poor in the world. So I hope that you will get to discuss that in your groups. Paul cautions us in 1 Corinthians, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This sobering verse stops me in my tracks every time I hear it or read it. Everything that I am and have has been sovereignly given to me by my Lord. I have no right to act as though I'm better than any person, any other person who's made in the image of God. In Deuteronomy, we learn that the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. When the apostle Peter was sent by God to the home of the Gentile Cornelius, Peter humbly learned, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. To those of us who do display favoritism to the high and insult the low, Matthew Henry says, Riches don't stand a man nearer to God, nor a man's poverty set him at a distance from God. 
God has made great and glorious promises to those to whom you can hardly give a good word or a respectful look. They are heirs of the kingdom with you, but you have despised them. You pretend to be children of God, but this is a monstrous iniquity in you. And I have done this. So if we think about this issue of partiality or favoritism, it doesn't make much sense logically because we're all children of God. We all have to come empty-handed before him, and we all must cling to Jesus and to him alone. As the saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So all of us, despite any status or wealth, are the same as we stand before our holy God. Jesus could have come to the earth in a fine palace with anything and everything he ever could have wanted. He did not. His parents were dirt poor, as we say. They could only afford the smallest offering at the temple. But as a poor person, Jesus was able to relate to all types of people. I found this very interesting. I hope you like this. In Jewish courts, men had to dress as if they were in similar life's station. So if one was dressed in fine attire and the other poorly in ragged clothes, either they had to give the poor man fine clothes to wear or the wealthy man had to don ragged clothes so that there would be no distinction made in the court in their outward appearance. This is all so hard, and I'm talking to myself here. This was so drummed into me when I was growing up. It's the externals that matter, how we look to people on the outside, who's important, who has status, wealth, money, power. We want to win approval from those types of people. We hide all of our dirt, our imperfections, our shame, and we never let it come out to see the light of day. I'm here to tell you that is not a good way. So now the second story about partiality, my own, towards someone whom I love. One of my sisters became pregnant years ago during college and was sent away to another state to live with my brother and his wife. The good thing was they were the only Christians in our whole family at the time. And through that experience, my sister also came to know the Lord. But the very bad thing, sadly, was that we all handled it very poorly. My parents told no one, not even their closest family. Now, this was back in the late 70s. Social pressures were much different then. But most of my siblings and I, as well as my parents, judged my sister, never considering how frightened she must have been, how difficult for her to have this problem sent away to be dealt with, swept under the rug. She was poor in her situation in many ways and experienced partiality from the very people from whom she should have had the most love and grace. I was so convicted as God brought this situation to my mind last week that I wrote her a letter once again asking for her forgiveness. God has taught me so much since that time, and by his grace, I pray that I would act differently now, but I still have a long way to go. Matthew 12, 34, Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, if you want to remember, tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
We can try to hide our favoritism and discrimination towards others, our partiality, but it will come out of our mouths, from our hearts, and often at the most inopportune times. I can verify this from firsthand experience multiple times over. We can think of characters in the Bible who showed partiality, and not a single time did it turn out well. Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob makes his younger son Joseph his favorite son, a coat of many colors, and was partial to Joseph, causing many years of heartache for all involved. Every time Abraham, actually twice, and then his son Isaac, passed off his wife as his sister to the prevailing king, they showed partiality against their very own wife in favor of the king. The Egyptian pharaoh tells the Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys but let the girls live. Um, King Saul's son Jonathan, his son Mephibosheth, was lame in both feet, but he's treated with contempt by Ziba, the servant who was entrusted to care for him. In the New Testament, the apostle Philip tells his brother Nathaniel, we have met Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I have done that, have you? Jesus is rejected by those in his own hometown, in his own synagogue, right where God's glory should have been most manifest. The Pharisees complain that Jesus eats and drinks with the scum of the earth like tax collectors and sinners. But truly, if we think about it, partiality goes all the way back to the beginning of God's story. Eve showed partiality against the known character of God in favor of the unknown character of a serpent. We have not come very far, have we? Lastly, in this section, James tells us we have become judges with evil thoughts. Matthew Henry says, trace your partiality till you come to those hidden thoughts which accompany and support it, and you will find those to be exceedingly evil. This was a good exercise for me. I don't know if you have this, but a woman who drives you crazy or irritates you, I had to think about this the past week. For me, I could trace my prejudices to ideas taught to me at home, prejudices instilled in me, which I needed to bring to the Lord and ask his help instead to love that woman as he does. God has chosen the poor in this world. James opens this next section with my beloved brothers. If you remember, he started at the beginning with brothers. Now he adds an even more endearing sentiment. They are beloved brothers. God has chosen the poor in this world. Matthew Henry says, their being poor doesn't prevent them from being chosen. And the fact that God chose them does not prevent them from being poor. But this is not really the issue, because they are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that God has promised to those who love him, which shows God to be an extremely gracious and generous giver. These believers who were poor especially needed to be cared for by God's people. And James gives three reasons why. The rich oppressed them, they dragged them into court, and they blasphemed the name of Jesus, their Savior. These rich landowners were dragging the poor into court, taking advantage of the court systems to take even more from the poor. This shows 
double-mindedness. Remember back in chapter 1? They are more influenced by the world's ways than they are by the ways of God. They are enslaving precious children of God. By their actions, they bring reproach to the name of Jesus, offending the entire body of Christ. This is all backwards. They're elevating the rich who are guilty of heinous evil, yet they're degrading and insulting the poor, many of whom God has chosen. The poor are actually rich in an eternal sense, rich because they have faith and rich in inheriting the kingdom of God. They're made in the image of God and they deserve honor from God's people. God gives us guidelines in his word, how to treat the rich and the poor. In Proverbs, he says, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. And in Leviticus, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Now, intellectually, we know that treating Christians differently based on their status is completely inconsistent with faith in Jesus. When, Jesus, when James calls them brothers, he means every one of them, regardless. So one commentator says, the glory of Christ resting on the poor believer should make him to be regarded as highly as his rich, richer brother. We should not make men's outward and worldly advantages the measure of your respect. If we have faith in Jesus, we should not respect man and lessen the glory to Christ. These are exactly the types of situations being fought against today by International Justice Mission and others where widows have had their land or small businesses stolen from them and they have no protection or recourse or where entire families are forced into slavery or children are promised a good education only to be taken away and forced into slavery of some sort. So I have just a few quick pictures here from IJM, International Justice Mission's website. There are surely many um, missions, organizations that are fighting slavery, but the, this is the largest one in the world. So the first one, slavery still exists all over the world. Many people believe that slavery ended hundreds of years ago, but sadly there are more slaves today than ever before in human history. Millions of children and adults are beaten, raped, and starved as slaves in homes, brothels, boats, and factories. Slave owners value money over human lives. Slavery is a multi-billion dollar industry. Driven by greed and overlooked by their local legal system, slave owners traffic and steal human beings for profit. Too often the poorest children and men and women are violently forced into slavery with no one there to protect them. And slaves need help to fight back because when they try to fight for their freedom, they are horribly abused. So hear what God's word has to say. In Amos, these are all Old Testament minor prophets. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. This is referring to the women who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. So here the oppressors are women, like fat cows full of food and drink, crushing the poor and the needy. Habakkuk says, the law is paralyzed, justice never goes forth, the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. And finally in Malachi, which I've abbreviated this long verse, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and do not fear me, 
says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so from that bad news, we go to more. Transgressors of the law. (laughs) There's good news at the end. John Calvin says, Foolish are the schoolmen who deem particular righteousness to be meritorious. He may be referring to ancient rabbis. Now, this is crazy, but just think this through. Ancient rabbis, some of them, who affirmed that by taking great care to observe one principal command of the law, like tithing or sacrifices or keeping the Sabbath or something like that, and neglect the rest of the law, they could earn God's favor. And as if they had kept the entire law. Like, that doesn't even make logical sense, right? So James is specifically combating that practice here in his example in verse 11 of the murder and adultery. But the rabbis, good thing there, was, there were many of them that taught good, um, they taught an opposing concept which James echoes here. This is what they said. He who transgresses all the precepts of the law has broken the yoke, dissolved the covenant, and exposed the law to contempt. And so has he done who has broken even one precept. So that's exactly what we hear James saying here too. If I'm apprehended by a policeman for speeding, I cannot say, but I've always paid my taxes and I never go through red lights. Um... My acts of obedience in one sense will not shield me from being a violator of God's law, which is an expression of his righteousness. Any transgression is blatant opposition to his holy character. We cannot pick and choose the parts we like or agree with to obey because they all flow from God's perfect righteousness. Dean Doriani teaches us, if people pick and choose what to obey, then they are still very much their own God. We are still masters of our own lives. If we pick and choose among the commands, we never really obey God himself. We forget that God gave every law and we enthrone ourselves. Obedience is all or nothing. We submit to God totally or not at all. So now we can get to some things a little better. James has sandwiched violators of the law, the transgressors, in between two expressions of the law of the kingdom of God, the law of love. This refers us back to the end of James 1, where James initially introduced the perfect law, the law of liberty, and the three marks of pure and undefiled religion. If you happen to be a visual person, here's a picture of the two bookends of the law of love here in chapter 2 with the transgressors of the law sandwiched in between. And if this is confusing to you, just close your eyes. This diagram is on your handout sheet. So you see, you see here, we have the royal law in verse 8. Fulfill the royal law according to scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. And see how I tied that down here with verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So the royal law is equivalent to the law of liberty, which is Jesus' perfect law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God first, of course. In between, sandwiched in between here, we have the transgressors of the law. If we show partiality, we commit sin. We're convicted by the law as transgressors. If we fail in just one point, then we're accountable for all. We are transgressors of the law. 
So you see how this is put together here, structured. The royal law is the law of the king, royal meaning belonging to the king. It not only belongs to God the king, but it leads us to him and to his kingdom, to Jesus. It relates back to the perfect law that gives freedom back in James 125. We first learned part of this law in Leviticus. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sins of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And as one of our habits group leaders said yesterday, and we always love ourselves, right? Then Jesus taught this as God's greatest command in the book of Matthew. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So exactly what is this law of love, this royal law, this law of liberty? Suppose that there was a way that had been arranged by which we could all be set free from our sin, not just from one sin, but from all of our sin, past, present, future, and by which we could lead holy lives, be set free from bondage to sin, from trying to win approval from men, and that we should be judged by that arrangement that had been made. Logically, it would make sense that, first of all, we would remember that, yes, of course, we are going to be judged because of our sin against a holy, holy, holy God. And secondly, the rule by which we were to be judged is the one that makes provision for us to be delivered from that sin and brought into freedom. Wow, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Jesus is right here with us right now. He has borne every stripe for us, every burden. There is nothing he has not done for us to bring us into the kingdom of his Father as his precious sisters. He loves us with an incredible love that will never quit. In fact, he has told us that his Father loves us in John 17, 23, with the very same love that he loves Jesus. That is astounding, but that is how God sees us when he looks at us through Jesus. Jesus has borne all the punishment for our sins that we deserved. He's not only rescued us from bondage to sin, he's given us his own righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes all of our sin, all the punishment we deserve, and he gives us his righteousness. Amazing. Jesus exchanged our filthy rags for his own righteousness before God, and we who belong to him are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the truth of the royal law, the law of liberty. We are set free from our bondage to sin, to live in freedom from sin, from approval from men, to live in the righteousness of Jesus. The bottom line is, there's absolutely nothing that you can do. Does that scare you? Does that frighten you? You are not in control. God is. Jesus is your only hope. He and he alone is the answer to your deepest desires, your hopes and dreams. You cannot save yourself. Cling to Jesus, to him only, and abandon all hope of all your works of self-righteousness. They are worthless. So the very last section that I told you was coming, how would you like to be judged? James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
If you want to be good enough to earn God's favor, if you want to try to keep the law as well as you can and pile up all your good deeds over against your bad ones, then God will allow you to be judged by his law, the law law. And what he says is that you must keep that whole law perfectly, every bit of it. If you keep one part and do not murder, but you commit adultery or any other sin, you have failed in the entire law. John MacArthur says, forget it. You only hit the glass in one spot, but you shattered the entire glass. You are judged by God's law. You have not kept every part perfectly, and you are doomed to hell for eternity. That's the judgment if you want to get judged by the law. This is the verdict in verse 13. Judgment without mercy will be shown to one who has shown no mercy. A.W. Tozer says, God has always dealt in mercy with mankind, but will always deal in justice when his mercy is despised. The choice is clear. You can choose to cling to Jesus, who has loved you with an undying love, loves you unconditionally, who will never leave you or forsake you, and be received into the arms of an eternally loving God who will always love you forever. Or you can choose to be judged by the law, trying to earn your way to a God who is holy, 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 trying to appease him by your, quote, good deeds, which are nothing but filthy rags, and utterly fail because you refuse the marvelous way of mercy offered by God, the way of Jesus and his royal law, clinging to him and throwing yourself onto him for mercy and grace and forgiveness and eternal life. These are the only two ways possible. There are no others. Cling to Jesus this day, foregoing all thoughts of trying to save yourself by your good works. Run to his arms of mercy, letting yourself be judged by Jesus' royal law of liberty, rather than as a transgressor. Father God, we come to you this day, and we thank you that you have made provision for us that we can not be judged and have to keep every bit of the law perfectly, but that in Jesus we can be set free if we cling to him and accept his sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice for us, where he takes all the punishment we deserve and instead gives us his pure, perfect, beautiful righteousness. Lord, thank you for Jesus. May his spirit go before us now as we go to our groups, as we discuss. I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts and draw us ever closer to Jesus, who just longs to be a savior for every one of us here. And we pray in his name. Amen. <laughs>